Thank you very much, Rachel. So people have actually been asking for me. You have got to be my number one most requested guest. Isn't it sad that I need that? I need to know that. (laughs) It actually gives me pleasure to hear that. Honestly, there's something, though, about you. I don't mean to embarrass you from the get-go, but you are one of those performers, I think, which people have... A genuine affection for. Well, that's nice. Yeah, I, I think I don't think I've ever seen anybody when your name has been mentioned say anything other than "Oh, I love him," and I don't know whether that's because you seem like a really delightful combination of skill that when you perform it almost seems like you're surprising yourself because you don't know that you have the skill and humility. Like that's what comes across, I think that you are really good at what you do, but you don't feel like somebody who rubs it in our faces. Oh, well, that's, yeah, well, that, uh, that's... Well, and also because I think comedians tend to build up over time uh, that sort of relationship with an audience too because I... And I'm speaking about this from the position of somebody who likes comedy and who grew up watching certain comedians and you feel... Because they make you laugh and they literally disarm you. You know, mm. they, you, you just... You have a... A liking for them, and you feel quite warm to them, and that. But that's something that builds up over time. So, having done it for twenty years, I'm sort of I'm pleased, but it probably doesn't surprise me that that those you've who, worn us down. Yeah, is what yeah, well, <laughs> but, and, and that's that's great. That's lovely, and it does make life easier, particularly if, like me, you're a little bit introverted and. Uh, find it hard to sort of break the ice with people when you meet them. They, it's already done. They come over and they're so nice to you. And, and you know, very rarely, I guess, would anyone come up and say, hey, I really didn't like that last show you did. Or you know, Yeah. They usually stay away and they won't talk to me. I'm sure they're out there. But but in terms of just uh, as an icebreaker, it's great. My, my life is a lot easier. That's true, actually, is that sort of social lubrication. Sure. When you enter a room and you just think, oh, thank God, I don't have to get start from zero yeah. here. Well, even performing on stage is, is a bit of a cheat that way because you uh, – and I've thought about this and I wondered why it appealed to me because I – I'm a reasonably quiet person, mm. but I think I quite enjoy the fact that I'm being observed by people and I don't have to necessarily engage with them. It makes it a bit easier. So there's a response from from an audience and I pretend I haven't heard it more often than not. Sometimes if I'm, if I'm doing stuff more up front, like talking apparently to the room or mm. down the barrel of a camera or something, I, I can enjoy their response and bounce back and forward but usually it's sketch is mm. what, where I come from so usually it's a more slightly actively approach to the whole thing and I uh, and then I guess after the show then you go and uh, talk to people and they already know you so it's just a, it's a bigger version of that just being on the telly you you say you're an introverted person where did this stem from for you this this kind of decision to get into to performance were you interested in it when you were little mm. No, I don't think I thought about it in those terms. I don't think it was like something I decided to, to do. I think it was a – I think introverts and extroverts both feel that everyone's looking at them. It's just that the extroverts probably enjoy it more. <laughs> True. I, so it, we're 
both sides are obsessed with themselves in a strange sort of way. But I think it was more just the currency of uh, of jokes and laughter was sort of important in our house. And I, in order to, I guess, win the approval of my mother probably and my grandfather, who was a fun, who was a funny fellow. Like if you make them laugh, particularly if you were misbehaving or doing something you probably shouldn't be. But if you could get if you get the laugh, that's approval and validation for doing something that perhaps you shouldn't be, and that's quite a sweet thing to be able to get. Mm. Uh, so that was sort of important. And then, then at the end of the day, it is about validation, I suppose, the need to take to the stage and perform before a group of strangers, all of whom say, yes, we, <laughs> yes, we like we what you, you did. Yes, we, yeah, that's, it's a sickness and it's quite, <laughs> it's quite pathetic, really. And to, to, I, I look at my own kids, you know, who are now in their late teens, uh, um, and they're funny fellas, but they don't feel the need to take to the stage to do it. They're far more well-adjusted than I ever was. And mm. I think that's a... And that's a credit to um, you, me, and my <laughs> and my wife, and and I th- I think we've done a good job. So it is a bit, it's a socially acceptable way, I think, to to seek this uh, validation that obviously you don't feel that you had enough of when you were small, mm. and that might not be because it's not necessarily because you didn't get it. It might be just you just got this insatiable thirst for it yeah. <laughs> that would never be satisfied. Did you find when you were when you were sort of navigating that in your family, did making your family members laugh come easily to you or was it a skill you were like, okay, this will bring some kind of emotional reward. I'm not necessarily naturally talented at it. I'm going to work at it. Or were you fun, a funny kid? No, well, yeah, I think it was an instinct and, and, and I don't – so I can't really take any credit for it. And we weren't a terribly demonstrative family, so it was it was just what you did. It was just the natural way that you felt the warmth of someone uh, someone's affection, rather than hugs. Mm. I suppose. I mean, they were there, but they weren't. You know, they weren't quite as sweet as a laugh. Yeah. And uh, I do remember. I do remember at kindergarten, and I was probably. And this is the first time I ever thought about it technically. I suppose. Uh, so I'm about four, and I'm I'm in this little play that we're doing for. Um, the parents that are coming along in the afternoon. So we rehearse it in the morning and they come along in the afternoon and see it. And it's my memory is that it was called Prince Charming, but that can't be what it was called. That must be my memory of it. My memory is, of course, I was playing Prince Charming and therefore I was the star of the show and so the whole thing was called Prince Charming. But it must have been, it must have been Snow White or... Who's the one that falls asleep? Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping I think Beauty. It must have been Sleeping Beauty right. because I had to, I had to uh, kiss uh, on the cheek... Uh, uh, Linda, somebody, Dabrowski, and uh, I remember I had, to, I, had to, I had to get on the rocking horse and and ride towards the cardboard castle. This is my uh, my director was telling me this. Okay, now okay, now get off the horse, get off the horse, and go over to to Linda and kiss her on the cheek. Um, and I remember getting off the horse, and the horse continued to rock, and uh, the other the other kids in the kindergarten laughed, and and I was conscious of that laugh, and she and the teacher said, don't. Make sure you make sure you stop the horse, otherwise pe- the parents will laugh. You know, and and I'm thinking, why would you, why would you stop the horse? So on the on the afternoon, I really rode that horse and just made it rock as violently as I could. Got a huge laugh, and it felt perfectly natural. And I didn't acknowledge the laugh, and it felt right. I thought, well, if I I know instinctively. And I was conscious of this as a four-year-old that if I don't acknowledge the laugh, it will go longer. So I wow. knew I knew that that I knew that that was the way to do it. So and that that for me is the key. It, it is the key to it is that 
is that you've got to pretend, well, in my case, I've got to pretend that it's normal and I'm not doing anything funny. Is that tough sometimes because you are doing things funny and it's sometimes it's hard to not laugh? Yeah, well, I've loosened up a lot since I was four. <laughs> you know, I, I can actually, uh, I can actually enjoy it a bit more. And it's true, actually, radio did this for me. Radio and. Uh, and uh, also, um, thank God you're here, mm. uh, gave me an opportunity to sort of find the humour of things rather than plan it as a writer or plan it as a technical exercise. Because I was, when I um, I went through um, a few TV shows, and I came to it as a writer, so I, I approached it in a very technical way. But I do enjoy it a lot. I can be seen to enjoy it a lot. I mean, mm. I always, I've always enjoyed it, but I think occasionally breaking or or just enjoying somebody else's performance. I know I'm mad as hell. I often laugh. Mm. Uh, we don't chase the laughs, but I often laugh with Roz Hammond, for example. She makes me laugh a lot, and Stephen Hall makes, makes me also laugh a lot. So, And as long as it doesn't go too far, I mean, I'm also technically aware that, you know, if you fall apart completely, then the whole thing dies. Yeah. You've got You've got to keep a few balls in the air, I but think. But I think when you've held it together for decades, people are yes. happy to let you have a little bit of a snigger and actually it looks quite delightful because you think, oh, gosh, that's a side that we haven't seen. Yeah, I've earned it. <laughs> you earned it. I've earned the right to be unprofessional. Exactly. Um, so I was reading that your mum took you to your first audition for something. Yes, that was curious. I, I was probably about 11, I think, and there was a TV show on, a morning TV show, where the host of that show would um, do television oh, – no, sorry, do um, uh, pantomimes. Mm. And there was a, like an open call, really a casting call, for kids to be in the chorus or something. My mother was very surprised. She maintains that I went to her and said, I'd like to be in that play. And no one had ever done a play before, we, you know, apart from the kindergarten experience. <laughs> of course. It's uh, something that I wanted to do, apparently. I can't remember asking for this, but my mother also put, all, put my three sisters into ballet uh, and they and I I wonder whether she made it up and just, <laughs> just being a stage mother. Anyway, she and Dad took me to this audition and I walked onto the stage with a whole bunch of other people because it was an open casting call and they called out my name and I took centre stage and I, I couldn't see anything. Uh, I could just hear the voices in the stalls saying, all right, what do you do? What can you do? And I hadn't at that point thought that I had to do anything or that I needed to do anything. I had no idea what an audition was. I can't believe how naive I was. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, can you sing? And I said, no, I can't sing. And I did. I've not been trained. I couldn't sing. I, I, maybe I could. I didn't know. Can you dance? No. Uh, well, what are you doing what here? Do you, what do you do? What can you do? And I said, oh, well, I can, you know, I can, I can be funny. It was so pathetic. Uh, so in the end, I think I sang Happy Birthday, probably out of tune and <laughs> while I was swaying. And obviously didn't get the role or anything approaching it. And I was I left and got in the car with mum and dad and went home. And I, I wasn't even I didn't even know enough to be embarrassed or humiliated by the experience. But then mum arranged for me to be trained a little bit. So I went to a um, like a theatre school on the weekend and learned how to project my voice or modulate my voice and to act, I guess, they learn some of the techniques of acting. Did your mum want to be an actor and she was living vicariously through you? Or? There, there might be there might be some truth in it. I know she took great enjoyment when the girls were dancing. I think, mm. she, I think she probably liked the idea of being on stage. But it, for me, it was a natural extension of, what, of getting laughs at home or with the relatives or with my uncle, who was also very funny as well. It just seemed a natural, fluid way of pursuing something that I liked and I've since 
I've since come across the expression, follow your bliss, which is a something Joseph Campbell used to say all the time. And I think that, for me, that's right, at least it worked for me, to just find that thing that you love, which is not an easy task. I think mm. it's easy to say, follow your bliss or do what you love. But a lot of people don't know what they love and spend their lives trying to look for it. Um, but if you're lucky enough to know what that is, usually you can fold it in a certain way that it becomes your job or it becomes your career or it becomes the thing that you love to do, you know, as a, mm. for a living, I think. And and I think the trick is is to learn some skills in folding yeah. so that you know if I do this and that and this, then it will fit with what you want on radio or on television or on stage or whatever it is you want to do as an entertainer. Were you acting... When you were young, all through those years, were you your mum had sent you to the training? Was that something that you continued to do all through school? Yeah, when from about the age of twelve, I think twelve and thirteen, I was doing uh, uh, pantomimes, kids' pantomimes during the school holidays. So we'd we'd rehearse a couple of times a week during you know in the lead up to the school holidays, and then bang, we'd be on for two weeks, and there'd be two shows a day. Might have even been three on the Saturday. Oh wow! Yeah. And you'd get paid twenty dollars or something like that. Oh, you got paid. That's a good thing. Twenty bucks, pretty good. <laughs> Nineteen seventy-two, whatever it was. Um, yeah. So, and but I, I started off. I was actually um, just pulling the. I was in the fly gallery, so I was just pulling the curtain, and I had I had been on spotlight. I'd learned how to do um, uh, work the sound, uh, work the lights, stage management. I learned all the backstage stuff before I went on stage, and that's actually been really good because I think in, now that I earn my living in television, I approached it exactly the same way. Try and learn as much as you can about the other departments so that you can all speak the same language. Um, because if you're a writer of comedy, the whole point of it is to shepherd the funny thing that you've written through the system, mm. uh, and it, the systems get more complicated. On stage, it's kind of easy because it's usually just you and the audience, and it's unmediated and unfiltered and unprocessed. But on television or film and radio to a certain extent, while it appears to be a very intimate medium, you've got actually about 200 people helping you tell that joke. Yeah. And if you can go through the various departments and know enough about it to, first of all, pick people who are really good and know their stuff or learn it yourself, that's a great way to be. So that helped inform what I end up doing now because I'm a producer as well as a, as a writer. And I always think of myself as a performer probably third. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't, I don't know why that is. I think it's probably I'm slightly embarrassed by it maybe. Or maybe, maybe it's as you observed – I'm sort of discovering it as I go. I still, I think I always look a bit like a lawyer who's, <laughs> who's just a bit surprised that he's in the thing that he's in. Yes. I look a little bit uncomfortable in the costume, yes. you know, uh, which is probably true. And I, and I, and I wouldn't ever pretend that I'm a, an actor. I always call myself a performer, mm. but I can do a bit of it. You know, I can play certain roles, usually a lawyer or a doctor or somebody, <laughs> somebody with some mild authority. When did the standing in for Humphrey B. Bear oh. thing come into the... Well, that was a kid's pantomime thing. That, <laughs> right. that was a That was a show, a fellow called Tom Fairley inhabited Humphrey uh, back then. Um, and uh, it was a two-hour show and uh, what he used to do on TV, which lasted half an hour, was impossible uh, in, a, in a, over two hours. He said, you need to go off and rehydrate. Yeah. And I would go on for a couple of scenes wearing a suit that was probably 20 years older. I remember, I remember it was terribly uncomfortable and used to move the mouth up and down with a, a sort of sponge-like thing on your chin. And I remember getting pyrrhea. I remember getting terribly, getting 
What is well, pyrrhea? It's a terrible mouth infection oh as a result of somehow getting the sweat of previous Humphreys uh, who who'd inhabited the body. It's like, like my mouth was haunted by the previous <laughs> previous occupants. Uh, so it was horrible. That was horrible. But I quite enjoyed that. That was that was interesting. Although my Humphrey was a little different, I think. Uh, so I was about. Let's see. Tom was probably about five foot six, mm. and I, at the age of fourteen, was six foot one. So, really? so Humphrey would leave uh, through a doorway and come back through another doorway. Had to duck his head slightly to get on stage. And in another costume. But but the costume looked the same. Oh, right. It was the same costume. It was just older. That was oh, just more, okay. Yes, right. It was just filled with whatever diseases <laughs> ended up in my mouth. Uh, the life of the mascot. Yeah, but I play. I played him a little more frenetically, and I was a younger man. I could play him a little more like Curly from the Three Stooges. Or, right. Yeah. What about you? Um, you went to law school after school, and you were a part of the law review at your university, which is a big part of any. Well, there's a few departments in university that that do reviews, but. I always, I don't know if it was like this at your university, but I went to Sydney Uni and the law review was sort of the the best of the reviews. Yeah, well, I think that might, yeah, the medical school had one, mm. but I don't think anyone went to see that one. That seemed to be like just the medical students <laughs> would go and see that one. And we, we sort of, the law school had taken over, the law student society had taken over the Footlights Club. Right. So there'd be a Footlights review, which was like anybody could be in that one. Oh, okay. Uh, and then there was the law review at the end of the no, the footlights were at the end of the year, and we were in the middle of the year. But it sort of was the same people. It was mainly law students and a couple of medical students who were especially funny. But no, they all it was all tended to be just footlights. You just come to footlights from whatever department you were. But if it was a law review, it was mainly the law students so for some reason. This was if you don't know what a law review or a review is, it's basically like a sketch show, and the students would write all of the sketches. So was that your first experience with sketch writing? Yeah, it would have been, yeah. And, uh, and there was a fella uh, who was a couple of years older than me by the name of Gary McCaffrey, mm. uh, who had been to my high school, in fact, uh, but I didn't know him because he's a bit older. And like two years is a long time when you're, when you're young. Uh, but he'd already, he was already there writing and he, he heard that I was funny, so he asked me whether I would join. And I still work with him today. Mm. Gary uh, is, is the finest sketch, sketch comedy writer in this country, I think. And uh, he and I... Uh, produce uh, Mad as Hell together still. And that's where we met Francis Greenslade as well. He was also um, part of that group as well. Wow. He, he, he was from f- the French department. So we did slightly look down on him <laughs> having a useless degree like French. But he's a lot smarter than us. You know, he was doing honours, I think. Well, well, well. He was doing honours. I... Sacre bleu. <laughs> I um I think sometimes those relationships you think uh, Amanda Keller and Andrew Dentonman at university and he ended up bringing her into his show um, because he knew her through university and and knew she was funny and wanted to, to and she was doing Beyond Two Thousand and those kind of things at the time but those relationships if you are lucky enough to mm. end up in this business but have partners in the business that you knew from days before that. That's a magical thing. Yes, and it's very important to have somebody to say, no, that doesn't work. Mm. Um, because there's a lot of – if you're lucky enough to get to the point where you can do the show that you want to do, um, generally people will be around you who will help facilitate whatever you have in mind. And that can sometimes be – that's a great thing. It seems really good on paper, but sometimes you do need someone quite close who knows you very well who can say, that's not funny. 
Yeah. Well, please don't do that anymore. I mean, you might not listen to them, but it's good. It's good to have people. <laughs> yeah. It's good to want to have those people around. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah it's amazing to make those connections early. Yeah. Did Did you talk when you when you had worked with Gary at in the review or when you were writing those sketches together? Had you talked about the potential of doing something outside of the review together at one point in the future? Was that ever something that you dreamt about or? Well, it's probably. I mean, I probably did it. Think as I went to bed at night, as I wanted to. The last thought I would save for that moment was probably thinking, "Wouldn't it be nice to do?" Then I'd imagine what I would do, you know, for mm. a, a larger audience. I don't really even think I thought of it in terms of TV or film. It just seemed like, wouldn't it be great if it was a bigger thing, you know, if it was if it was everybody, without really knowing what that was or the container of it or anything. And I don't think seriously I ever considered that it would be a career because it just didn't. How could I get there from where I was? I couldn't understand that. I used to watch um, Barry Humphreys, you know, and I'd see him in Bedazzled or something with Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, and I'd think, wow, he's Australian. How did he get there from here? I just couldn't understand it. So it just seemed like a fantasy world, and that was fine. We could do our little shows, and even when I left university, I continued to do those sorts of shows. Gary, on the other hand, actually <clears throat> did... Uh, nail his colours to the mast and went off to become an actor and Francis also went off to become an actor and I went into the law and practised the law for 10 years mm. while they were pursuing uh, their art a bit more seriously. But it's a good thing because then, I mean, Gary's the person that ended up getting you over to ride on Full Frontal, so you just let yes. him do that. Yes. Exactly the same thing I did for the Footlights. I got him to open the door for me. Oh, yeah, sure. Are you yeah. ready? You're ready for me now? But, I, you know, and I, and I don't, certainly don't want to downplay the importance of, of Gary and Francis. Uh, they're not just people who say, don't do that. They're, you know, Gary, as I say, is a wonderful writer, and Francis is probably the best person to to execute my material, you know, that we write. Um, and they're just fun to work with. That's the other thing, I suppose. Well, you wouldn't, I mean, you wouldn't have done as much with them if you, if it wasn't the case, you know. You no, sort of, no. And it's it's lovely to have those kind of partners in crime, in a sense, to go, oh, we can make this and we know each other's comedy and we know how we work and, and we can build this thing together. Yeah, and you want to, and you, it's like, a, I think it's like arranging a dinner party. You think, well, wouldn't it be interesting to put this person with this person and, you know, Francis can be here and Gary can be there and you and you sit back and you enjoy watching everybody get on well with each other mm. you know that's that's a, that's a real that's really a half the fun for me yeah do you uh, uh, I, I thought we might have a little pun off because uh, sure. of course uh, the law review is known for and all the reviews are known for pretty terrible punny titles well it's often the only thing that's funny about them <laughs> it's really true is on the poster and I I have a few of the ones that I was in that I remembered and I was just wishing that I could actually remember some of the ones that hit the cutting room floor because those were the ones that I remember being really atrocious. Uh, but what could you, can you remember some of the titles of the ones that you did? Yeah, we did This Is A Law Review and it was Barristar Galactica. <laughs> Which doesn't quite work. It doesn't quite work when you read it. They the spelling's never a bit do. off. <laughs> but it sort of works if you say it quickly. Yes. We did Lolita. Oh, wow, that's good. Which wasn't too bad. Wow, that's very good. <laughs> well, also, it's a little, uh, it's a little smarter than ours. <laughs> What do you have another one? Uh, yes, I do. We uh, we have um, Star Laws, which is <laughs> awful. Yes, again, so again, that's all we work. We worked only with sci-fi from the that's late seventies, really early eighties. Yeah. Um, we had uh, around about the time that Looking for Ella Brandy was big. We had Looking for Alimony. 
Well, that's nice. Yeah, that's nice. Not too bad. I, th- I think I can, uh, I, can I, I can lay down my trump card. This is the last one. Okay, go. Uh, okay, here we go. Subpoena hard days night. <laughs> Which I actually actually like that one. That that one. Okay, that's Matt, that's that, really good. That's, that's really good. good. Did you did you in the review have a nude sketch? We used to have that in every show. There was always a nude scene. Yeah, I remember there was one. We didn't have it every show, but I do remember one that uh, we wrote that we thought was hilarious, and it was the the premise of it because mm. it did need some premise to justify it. <laughs> it was just so we could see someone nude on stage. Anyway, so then the nude person uh, in this case a fellow would walk out and be interviewed. Uh, and he'd forgotten. He realizes during the interview that he's forgotten something. He apologizes terribly, walks off, and then comes back on wearing a hat. And I think that was the that was the shtick. But no one could do it. No one. No. Everyone was too scared. So the guy doing sound, a fellow by the name of Nick Murray, who now runs CJZ, CJZ, oh. who's uh, was president of the Spa Association, I believe. He. Uh, was so keen to get on stage, he was happy to come on stage nude, oh, which, he, wow. which he did. She did. We could we could barely. I mean, we had more people volunteering to be nude. Oh, than really? We knew what to do with? Wow. Yeah, we would have full scenes of people full of naked people. There were just it was one of those things where everybody felt. I think it was that sort of rite of passage slash. I think I should do this to prove that I'm brave enough or something. You felt a bit left out if you didn't, like you weren't sort of ballsy enough, for want of a better term, (laughs) Um, you know, if you didn't do it. So we had full stages of like these elaborate scenes. You know, we did one fake uh, military one, which I remember we called Saving Ryan's Privates. (laughs) (laughs) You're working backwards from the title there. Wow, that's, so it was like hair. You'd go along to the law review and it'd be like some hippie. It was. Oh. It was, yeah, it was literally just a bunch of naked people running around stage. I think my mother genuinely was concerned about what I would become. I think she just did because she was quite prudish and she would turn up and be like, why, 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 why are you doing this? But it was, you know, it was... Uh... See, I never asked my parents to come. They, oh, they, they Even though we were clothed, I, I, for some reason I was... Maybe it was maybe some of the material, some of the language was probably a little yeah, bit. Yeah, blue. Uh, or something. Uh, yeah, so they never saw me on stage uh, during my university years. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's. I, I think I invited. So you should have done that. I think if you'd said, "Mum, yeah, it's best." <laughs> best I, I invited my mum to one thing I was doing for the drama society, and in the opening scene, I had quite a few dropped a few f bombs. And I saw, I did the opening scene, and I literally saw my mum pop up from the middle row and oh. start walking out. <laughs> wow. Talk about no validation there. Oh, man. How did you cope with oh, that? That was just... I, I don't mean to get super emotional and personal here, but that was like... The visual representation of the, my relationship with my mother was just her consistently walking out of everything in well, my you're, life. You're probably slightly relieved because you thought, well, a nude sketch is coming up in two <laughs> two minutes. She'll be out there having a fag. That'll be okay. Oh, Did yeah. she come back in? No, that oh. was it. She went home. Wow. Yeah, she left and she went home. Good and Lord. And that was it. We had a very strained relationship yeah, for a... a lot of years, but we did come good in the end. No stars. <laughs> no stars from mum. <laughs> um, so you did. you left university and you went and became... An insurance lawyer. I did. I did that for 10 years, but I did do those sorts of shows on the side. Oh, you did keep going. I did keep going. We wouldn't do two a year, but there'd be a cabaret show uh, or even occasionally I'd go back and direct. You know, I couldn't leave uni alone. I used to go back and, and... 
direct or write for the I've younger ones. I've got a friend ones. like that, Tom Glasson. He yeah. is, he's, he's now a writer and he's moved into, but he did the same thing, went back, kept on writing sketches. Yeah. I remember he could just ch- churn out scripts consistently and I think it was a fabulous outlet for somebody who has skill yeah. to do that. And then when you go into the real world, you go, well, where else am I going to give these scripts. No, that's true. And I, I must admit, I didn't think of it that way. But of course, that yes, that's probably the same reason here. There was only the one outlet for the thing that I thought I could do. Mm. But almost everything I've done since, um, whether it be on stage or on television or even on radio, owes a debt to sketch comedy or it's a version of sketch comedy. Mad as Hell, which is what we do on the ABC at the moment, mm. though it appears to be a, a satirical news show, is really just a sketch comedy show. Yeah, It's just that we um, we pretend that it's a bit more important than it is <laughs> or people see it as being some... It's fed by topical stuff, so I guess it uh, it serves that function as well, but it's really just dressing up and doing voices. You you did law for 10 years. When, during that time, I've, I've heard you speak a lot about your the conversations that you had with your wife about, you know, wanting to get into comedy and and the idea that I was watching an interview where you were saying that you felt like it's something you could get to later because you'd seen some comedians have their break later in life. You think, okay, well, I could always get to that. But was it that or were you scared? Or did you love the law and not want to leave it? Or were you scared to try something? I didn't mind the law. I quite I quite enjoyed being a lawyer. Mm. Uh, so I didn't leave or I didn't really ever become disenchanted with it. In fact, I started taking it more and more seriously and realised what it was and what it could do. And I quite enjoyed the discipline of it all and the fun of it. You know, the fun, it was quite a nice thing to solve a series of problems and thereby solve a larger problem, which is how I always looked at it. Yeah, Groucho Marx was always the one I would quote. Well, he didn't make his first film until he was 40. I think in the back of my head I had some fantasy life ahead of me that apparently at 40 the door would open and I would be asked to make a film. Of course, it was ridiculous to think that way. But So I just continued doing these little shows and maybe popping up on on local radio in Adelaide. Uh, And then I started watching The D-Gen and The Late Show. And I thought, man, these guys are a couple of years younger than me, I think. And that that was a real um, that was a real worry because they had we knew of them at our footlights even when I was at university we knew about them and they had come over the Melbourne Uni crowd had come over and it was Magda and I think and Rob Sitch and a few others maybe Santo as well and they'd done a show and we'd gone and seen it and found it very funny and I. F- I, as now, I'm always a bit threatened by somebody who can do what I what I think I can do, yeah. and seems to do it well. It makes me laugh. I think, oh, oh that's yeah, that's great. <laughs> I'm I'm far easier laughing at at someone who's who can do is doing something I can't do. Yeah. You know? Then they, they went away, and they went away, and that was good at uni. And but then I saw them on television. I thought, oh, how do they get there from here? How, yeah. how do they do that? So. Um, it was the Late Show, really. I think I was watching the Late Show, and it was really funny. And I thought, wow, I would really love to do that. And Gary, God bless him, had already gone over to Melbourne and was writing for Fast Forward. Mm. And I thought, well, that, that's pretty close to what I'm watching here. I'd never seen Fast Forward, but I knew that it was sketch comedy, and it had turned into Full Frontal, I think. Yeah. In the year that I ended up deciding to leave, uh, and uh, God bless him, he got he got me a job essentially writing for. Full frontal. I had auditioned by tape. I'd sent some tapes over, and I remember the director Ted Emery sending a note back saying, "No, sorry." It was, just, and they were tapes of my stage work. Yeah. And uh, he'd said apparently to others, he said, "No, he's too much like Stephen Fry." 
I'm thinking, oh. well, is that a bad thing? Why, yeah, why Stephen no Fry's done pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I wasn't in the cast as a performer, but I, I was sort of a writer and you used to get paid by the minute. So I was guaranteed 30 seconds on air. So if even if I didn't get it on air, I would be paid as if I had got 30 seconds on air, which was about $120 a week. Oh, really? Yeah. That was, is that how it works? That's how it works. So you're paid by the, by the minute or part minute. Hello. Gosh, that's interesting. Yeah, but unfortunately that system meant that you probably weren't likely to collaborate with somebody else because as soon as you get some other writer on the script, you're halving the amount of money yeah, right. you can make. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. But so so that was that was the f- the first job I got. My wife, uh, my wife was the one who, and I have told this story, and it is true, uh, is that she's the one who said, "Well, why don't you do it?" Mm. I'm sitting there watching the Late Show, going, "Oh." I could, yeah, I really like to do that. And I liked it and didn't like it and liked it and didn't like it because I wasn't there. And I think it was becoming quite annoying to watch television with. And she, she just said, well, you should do it. Well, you know, it doesn't matter what it, you do it. You've done that for law for 10 years. So I didn't know how to get there and I didn't necessarily want to contact Gary. But I did, uh, first of all, try and contact the Australian Film and Television School because I thought, well, I have to have some qualification. I have to be able to do something. And I thought editing would be the way to go. But I didn't get in there. So Gary was really the last... You know, he was the only other option. It wasn't even the last option. It was just the only other way I could think of doing it by riding it on somebody else's coattails. <laughs> Did your is it true that your wife gave you a date to yeah. either do it or shut up about it? Yeah, it was the I had to do something by the eleventh of November of that year, so it was circled on the wall calendar, and I do remember where that was in the kitchen, <laughs> and uh, and I was true to my word and uh, and had it sewn up by the eleventh of November wow. and. So I packed the car and, uh, um, again, this is a, a great credit to Leandra, um, I had to leave. I, I didn't know whether it would work, so she stayed in Adelaide and I went to Melbourne. I used to come back. I used to commute every couple All of weeks right. I'd come back. But I, and I did that. we did that for two years. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then eventually I thought, I think this is okay. I think this seems to be working because by that time I had got into the cast and I could see that it was sort of likely to continue as you know as secure as this any element mm. of this industry can be. It seemed to be working, and you know apart from a couple of hiccups here and there over the last twenty years, I'm lucky enough to have been working every year. Even when I wasn't working, I was always writing. So, mm. so it sort of worked out okay. She was right, but I never until she mentioned it until Leandra actually said to me. Why don't you do it? I never really considered it as a possibility, as a thing that a grown-up person would do. Really? Yeah. And I think I think that if the, if I can offer any advice to the listeners, it's that the pattern of your career is only evident when you look back on it. Yeah, of course. If and and at the time you do it, I don't really think there's any way you can go. You can look too many steps ahead. And you really just have to do what you love to do and the step will be there in front of you and then the next step will be there because you've taken that first step and you've just got to really have have faith in in where you're going because mm. you, you're doing it for the right reasons. Now, that that seems that's a pretty useless roadmap, I suppose, But and I know there are other people who can seem to say, well, you know what, I'm going to do this and I'm going to achieve this by a certain time. And I remember reading uh, Steve Martin's book, and uh, at least in retrospect, at least at least in terms of him thinking back uh, on his life as a stand-up, he seems to have had more of an idea of where he was going to go and how long he was going to do it for and what he wanted to achieve by it. I think the only time I ever thought to myself, you know what, it's a good idea if I do this for my career, was when I was on Full Frontal and I thought, I'll just do characters for a while that look down the barrel of the camera because that seems more intimate. 
And I was conscious of the fact that when watching television that the ones that were actually directly talking to me, I felt like I knew. And that was a, a way in an ensemble cast of at least sort of standing out a little bit. And so people go, I know that guy. Oh, he's dressed up as this person in the next sketch. Rather than getting lost, uh, perhaps, as you might otherwise be if you were just acting all the time. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Now, that worked for me be- That worked for me because I could do the, both, of, both of those things. Mm. And indeed... It, it achieved that end. It actually enabled me to spin it, up, spin off full frontal into a little special that we did. Excuse me, um, around about nineteen ninety six, I think, which that ended up being the prototype for the show at the ABC. We did called the McAuliffe Program, which was really just a, it was a, an excellent, I think, sketch show in terms of having production resources and. It was only half an hour versus the hour that we were spending on a commercial network, but it had the same budget. So we had a, amazingly, wow. we had, we were lucky enough to have this this wonderful budget. It was probably the last fully full blooded budgeted sketch show ever. And I don't know whether we put an end, <laughs> put an end to it by being too strange, but it, you know, these days, if you sadly, if you want to make a sketch show, you've got to you've got to go and dress in your car and uh, yeah. and shoot in the real world, and that's okay, but. It does limit the sorts of material that you can do. It mm. always has to be somebody acting old in the real world, whereas sometimes it's fun to to act normal in a very strange world, and you can only do that if you're building the set. When you came over and did Full Frontal, this is obviously something that's sat in your mind for a long, long time as a, a dream that you might never get to do, and all of a sudden you're living the dream. Uh, was it what you thought it would be? Um no, I, I don't think I was. Oddly enough, the, the 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 fantasy element, the idea of performing, that I described before, was performing before a, a, a larger crowd, and that saw that certainly that box was ticked by being on television. But I hadn't really um, bothered with the detail of my fantasy. So, <laughs> so because it was so unreachable and was just a thing in my head. And yet I dared not actually root it in reality at all. And I really had no idea. Mm. It was just a fascinating education. So I would, and because I had nothing else to do, because I wasn't home, I, I literally had nothing else to do. I only had to write 30 seconds of material a week. So I used to go and hang around and watch them build the sets. And I'd uh, watch the edit. You know, I'd sit there in the edit and see how they put the show together. And that really helped because, as I say, the language of collaboration, the common language of collaboration, will enable you to do your job much better. So I could see that um, if I write in a certain way, it'll be easier to edit. If I if I write a certain sketch, the set is easier to build. I even sort of had an economies of scale approach to it, where I thought, well, if I get four four versions of this idea, then that will justify the cost of building the set. So. Wow. Very early on, I think I had a slightly producerial way of looking at things, and it might, that might be because I used to produce my own little shows back way back when. Um, so, yeah, the way I learned how to to do whatever it is I do now uh, is built from the writer's room out. It's built from the idea out, and I think that's just the way I work, and other people might work differently. I don't tend to work like some performers do where they... Um, you know, they do multiple takes and they ad-lib and they improvise and they they shape it as they go. I tend to think that work is in the writing. Performance is, uh, it's got to be as exact as possible. Um, you can have a little bit of fun with it um, aside from that. And then you and then you fix it up in the edit. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how I work. So. 
What do you think about, because that time, I think, we all get, times have obviously changed in media and we all, I think, get a bit nostalgic for that time when comedy and sketch was mainstream television. You know, we didn't have cable mm. and a million different ways to ingest entertainment. So you could get a lot of bodies around the TV at one time. And certainly anybody that's grown up through that stage, that time, remembers Fast Forward, Full Frontal, all of those big shows that really where a lot of comedians who we now know all over the shop cut their teeth. You know, you Julia Morris's people that we see on our screens a lot now. Um, that was a real breeding ground for them and yourself as well. Do you have that sort of those were the glory days view of that or do you look at what is possible now and go, geez, imagine if this was around when I started? Yeah, I, I don't tend to look back even. No, I don't, I don't have any um, particular fondness for the past anyway and nor do I have any regrets that I wish we had, you know, what we have now back then. Mm. Um as I say, I've been lucky enough to have reasonably constant work, so it is always looking for the next thing. And I do tend to get bored very quickly, and I do tend to look back on stuff and think, oh, that's awful. You know, stuff that when you're doing it, you have to be in love with it completely and think it's the best thing you've ever, ever done, otherwise you wouldn't do it. You, you, your enthusiasm for something has to be such that others will come with you on it and, mm. and believe in it. But I think I have probably gotten better as a performer I know what my limits are. I've actually improved some things that I couldn't do. And that's interesting to me. I think I think the next challenge, whatever the next thing is, if it's something I've never done before, that's going to be the most exciting thing. So I don't have any particular fondness for sketch comedy shows of yore. You know, I just, I feel like, oh, well, that's what it is now. And I don't know, I think the appetite now is for, you know, something else. I, I, I don't even know what that is. But in the old days, of course, the, the, the full frontal show, for example, or fast forward, that the premise of that was that you were going through channel changing through a bunch of stations and you wouldn't even watch the end of the sketch. It would mm. just suddenly cut out in the middle of it. And that's sort of – you don't need that construct anymore. That's pretty much how people yeah, either true. watch television or <laughs> look at stuff on the internet. Yeah, that's you know, true. It's built in. Everybody is their own program. Everybody can curate what they want to watch. Mm. And uh, everything in the world that ever existed is on YouTube. So if you want to, if you want to watch the old days, you can watch the old days. It's fine. Yeah, you don't need true. to tr recreate them anymore. And you, also this um, this mantra that um, old media in the form of television, uh, you, off, you often hear is that um, live television, live television is the way to go. Well, I don't think the audience cares whether it's live or not. They just want something good. Mm. And that, and in a way, they don't. If you do watch real live television from the old days, like the recordings of it, it's pretty terrible. Yeah, that's true. The thing that the thing that actually got you through it was the the bits that you now see in a highlights package, yeah. which you can find on YouTube. Yeah, and there was also nothing else. You know, it wasn't like you could go yeah. and watch Game of Thrones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> People are streaming at eight thirty. They don't care. You know, they don't mm. really care what's coming out. So, so yes, this sort of event television of uh, you know how embarrassing somebody can if they burst into tears because their food's not right or because they, you know, have fallen off, you know, a cliff with the person they're supposed to marry. That, those sorts of shows. That's a great idea for a good show. It's a good pitch. Put those two things together. But you know, that, that, that strip through the week is what people want to watch and mm. people don't necessarily. And pe people like watching Australian drama more than they like watching um, drama from overseas on free-to-air television. But they don't watch a lot of it. 
you know, they will like it a bit more than the other, but they're, they're really not watching it anymore. What they're watching is they're streaming Game of Thrones. They're streaming, or they're watching all the old stuff. They're watching Deadwood, as I am at the moment. Mm. And they've missed it the first time around. Yeah. I think it's fantastic. So there's, you're competing with the past because the past that you've never experienced. And there's, there's so much now that it's really hard to get uh, to elbow your way in. And mm. if you're a young performer and aren't established, I think it's a really hard thing to break into. And, and everyone talks about, yes, you can make your own stuff and put it on the internet, but you still kind of need somebody to point at it and say, you know what, this is actually worth watching. And that'll happen, you know. And then someone will work out how to make money from it properly and then it'll get ruined. Yeah. It's like Facebook. <laughs> yeah. Is Facebook fun for anybody? Does anyone like it anymore? No, I know. You know and Twitter. Constantly moving oh, things around. I, soon, I can't work out how any of that stuff works. As soon as you get the stink of advertising on it, it just it's I know. dead as far as I'm concerned. So did your pro- profile change significantly? Uh, I mean, obviously your profile would have changed, but your life changed significantly when you did Full Frontal. Did you notice it? difference when people started to recognize oh you're that bloke that makes me laugh on the telly I, I guess I guess I was yeah I guess there would be people that had come up and and say they'd seen the show but that's kind of happened in Adelaide someone had come up and say they saw me on stage doing something oh, you know right. it just it happened a little more often I suppose and and in terms of profile I don't think I don't think from uh, it's not something you can particularly appreciate or understand how you appear to other people I don't know of any way of experiencing that I guess I just mean the the shift because it's quite unnerving sometimes to go from and maybe because you did have a bit of experience with that in Adelaide but to go from relative obscurity and go you know to all of a sudden having a situation where oh when I go and buy milk somebody says that I've never met before hello yeah. Well, I, I guess that happens slowly, and and it didn't bother me at all. I quite mm. I quite liked. It. Like I said, it's a it's a the ice is already broken. Well, that's with, true. with most people, and uh, and <clears throat> to be honest, it's a very low level of recognition. It's not like it's. Uh, I think if you're like a film star and uh, and that would uh, that would probably be a bit annoying. I can see how that would get annoying. I mean, I made a decision early on, or Leandra and I talked about it early on about not. Uh, you know, we wouldn't. If we had a baby, we wouldn't be on a cover of anything and we'd, mm. we'd not sell that bit of ourselves. Um, and she's not in show business, not interested in it, and that's perfectly fine, you know. And and I wasn't terribly interested in it either, so therefore there hasn't been any of... In, in my younger years, when that might have been slightly interesting, I tended not to hive that off and sell it. Mm. But you do have to sell a little bit of yourself when you're putting a program on. Uh, and you want people to see it, but I, my motto has always been: we'll just be a bit funny in the interview, you know. That and yeah. hopefully we'll tell people <laughs> yeah. it's a comedy and that you know it's worth seeing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <clears throat> um, did you have you ever had any bad shows or gigs? I feel like you have become a bit Teflon. If you have, I don't think any of the mud stuck. Well, let me remind you of all the mud. Uh, <laughs> Well, there's, pl- there's been plenty of things that haven't worked. I'd, you know, I'd say more things haven't worked than have worked. Really? It's just, it, but it's all a question. Failure is a question of degree, I reckon. I just you feel could, I don't feel like you've ever. I mean, I know. Well, most of the stuff I did in full front, it was awful. That was most it? of it was awful, but it was it, it. Yeah, look, it doesn't stand up now. So I don't know. But whether, that was of the time. Like, well, it I, might be of the time. Yeah, that's true. But anyway, that was that was a successful show. That's true. And and I was I came into it and left before 
you know, I came into it after it started and left before it had finished. So mm. I don't feel like that's really my show. <laughs> I so that you were was okay. I didn't feel like the end was my fault. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, you can't blame me for that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the, the one after that was the McCarla program. Now I was, uh, you know, Gary and I we were completely responsible for that one, mm. and that is fondly remembered yes. and it was enjoyed at the time. Then came uh, a sitcom called Welcher and Welcher, which lasted one series, and I and from memory uh, received some of the worst reviews I ever. Oh, really? Re- yeah, that, that that didn't go down well at all. It had some really good ones towards the end, but it was generally regarded as a misfire. Right. And it was a. Uh, I made the mistake of um, we we didn't have an audience. So this okay, this is nineteen. How was it? Two thousand and one, I think it is. Right. Uh, and. They said, do you, do you want to have a live audience for it? And I said, no, let's, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do a live audience. So we built a set and everything, and, and we had the studio set up. But the way I'd written it, because I hadn't had much experience at all writing long-form narrative, it was it made it impossible to shoot in front of an audience. I'd just written what I thought was funny. And, that, and remember the director looking at it and saying, well, we've, this, this, most of this is OB, and most of this is outside the studio. Right. So we had, we had a studio set that looked like a studio set, no audience, and a lot of stuff out out in the street. So what happened was you turned it on and it looked flat like it was, you know, Frasier or Will and Grace or something, and uh, there were no laughs, and it just sort of felt like it was failing. Oh. Yeah, so... You didn't think of putting a bit of canned laughter in there? We we, we did show it to an audience and mm. to record their laughter, but um, for some reason it was decided not to do that. Mm. Now, if you watched it now, you probably wouldn't even feel that because yeah. it's the way everything looks. But at the time, it was it was considered a bit unusual. Mm. And I think Kath and Kim came, came along afterwards and certainly didn't do that. And mind you, they didn't have a studio set. Anyway, for whatever reason, and I'm happy to take some blame as a performer and writer for it, it didn't didn't work. The next show was uh, at Channel 9 and it was called uh, McAuliffe Tonight and it was a variety show yes. which uh, was a stinker. You know? <laughs> but it was but I don't feel like people look back on that like it was bad. Like it may not have lasted but did people look back? Because I look back on some of the sketches now like yeah. your first day at Channel 9 and those kind of things. They're great. Yeah, I had funny. Look, it's perfect. You bust it up and put the best bits on yeah. YouTube and it's fine. But I, I think as an hour sit through on a Wednesday night or whenever it was, was a bit tough for the Channel 9 audience. Right. And so when I say it, it didn't work, it was axed, you know. we yeah. it was I got the phone call and, and told to go home, you know. And then there was nothing for about a, a year. There was a show called Blackjack, which was um, it was a telemovie for Colin Friels. Yeah. And it wasn't a comedy. It was uh, something, a different set of muscles, you know. And that worked. But that, that was when I wasn't working as a comic performer anymore. So I did that for a, for about a year. And I went on the I went on stage uh, with uh, Glenn Nicholas doing a, a couple of shows, uh, oh, okay. just just getting that experience back, being on stage again, and then went on to um, the next thing was radio. I did uh, Vega. Yes. Uh, now that didn't work either. So I I, I had <laughs> a run of terrible things over a few years, and that. Having said that, I really enjoyed doing it, and there probably were good bits in it. But it was a bit. How of... do you deal with those shows wrapping up? Sort of, I I never th- think of them as failure because it's just part of the way that things roll yeah. on. Everybody gets things axed. But do you? Are you someone that goes, "Great, that was a fabulous time." On to the next thing, or do you? It, does it hurt? Uh, look, I think the I think the variety show being axed was a bit embarrassed. I felt a bit embarrassed because it was so felt so public at the time. Mm. I don't know whether people really. 
people, the punters at home or the audience really cares terribly much about it. They just, oh, it's suddenly not on. And, you know, I think maybe the performers and the people involved with the show feel it more keenly than the audience w- would. So, um, yeah, I, I was, I, w- I did wonder how I w- could recover from that because it was such, for me, it felt like such a public failure. Mm. Uh, and it took me about a year before I um, sort of was brave enough to to go back again. I was a bit gun shy, I think. And the first show I did was uh, Thank God You're Here. Oh, right. Work, oh, gee, work, that's throwing yourself in the deep end. That would be nerve-wracking. Well, Working Dog <laughs> were kind enough to ask me whether I want to do it, and they, they showed me the pilot, and I said, yeah, sure, that sounds like fun. I had nothing to lose. I really mm. had nothing to lose. And uh, so I'd, I did that, and uh, that helped me... Um, Get back get on back the horse, in. I think. And then, so the radio thing kind of didn't work, but that lasted a couple of years, but it didn't, didn't kind of work. And then I did a show called Newstopia, which, mm. uh, you know, it was sort of a bit failure-proof because it was on at 10 o'clock at night <laughs> on a Wednesday on SBS. So <laughs> who knows whether no one or everyone watched it. I, I know that not many people watched it, but in terms of a percentage of SBS's audience. And also it was a good rehearsal for Mad as Hell, I think. Uh, but then, uh, so after Newstopia, I did uh, Talking About Your Generation, which was, a you know... After a few years of quiet times, it was quite successful. So I think I've had more. I've had, I've had more misses more than misses. hits. But generally, as I say, I think I think if people tune in and they make it, you make them laugh. That's what they remember. They don't mm. remember the ratings. They don't no. remember how long it lasted. It's a, it's an it's a very much an accumulative relationship you have with the audience. What about talking about radio there and talking about your generation? It's it's kind of a shift from what we used to what we were used to seeing of you, which was character work, to oh, all of a sudden this is you, Sean, the person. Yeah. Especially in radio, when you are in many ways exposed for three hours a day, and it becomes less about your. Well, I mean, it is still about funny anecdotes, but you're starting to strip your life for material and be you in conversation. Was that weird or difficult to transition to? Or um, I, I, yeah, look, I wasn't prepared to do that. Mm. Um, I didn't. I didn't go in thinking that's what I was going to do. I actually went in foolishly thinking I could write everything. Oh no! Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I should have spoken to you. Um, yeah, anyway, that was that was the intention. Of course, it's impossible. And, impossible. And I was told by, was it Paul Clark? I think he might have told me. He was the producer of the of the show. I was putting together a lot of programs for Vogue. He said, look, there's nowhere to hide. Mm-hmm. You know, you will be, he says, you're good company. You'll be fine. Just be yourself. Uh, so, and I sort of had played characters that had my name on television, but that wasn't that wasn't really me. But so it was a quite a strange experience. Again, as I say, uh, and maybe it's a bit easier on radio where you can you can still uh, roll your eyes or and the audience doesn't hear it. So you're doing it all with your voice. Mm. I think being yourself on telly might be slightly more slightly more difficult. I don't know. But it. I, but basically, I relaxed over some time, and uh, while I wasn't terribly keen on telling stories from my life, which I just assumed were boring anyway, I did. I did used to take the digital recorder home and oh, and, you got in, you got waist deep in it then. <laughs> but what I did was I went home. I had like my five year old. I'd say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna pretend that we're gonna be breaking into the next door neighbor's uh, apple orchard, stealing apples. So we just did a little play. So basically, I was just playing with the kids and recording it. So oh, we we climb over and then you know he got shot. I put a sound effect on and I remember playing that and the, and the, the program director coming over and saying, look. <laughs> We appreciate that you're working yes. when we're, you know, we're not paying you. There's a lot of effort in this, but uh, it's. I just want story. You going to the bank? Uh, all right. 
That seems a bit dull. <laughs> anyway, so I did. I you know I did. I found a way around that, and I think often that's what I do. I out of perversity, if I'm told to do something by somebody in authority, <laughs> I will tend to just do something. I will subvert it slightly, give them something else, put enough effort into it, and hopefully it works. Yeah. But surprise everybody by doing it. But do you feel, I know you were saying earlier about how you felt like that work in radio and being yourself made you feel a little, more, a little bit more like you could laugh in those moments when you are in scare or bring a bit more of yourself. Do you think that that time has given you something that you've oh, worked with in the absolutely. later years? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think with... I don't think I could have done Thank God You're Here had I not been doing radio. And I don't mm. think I certainly couldn't have hosted Talking About Your Generation unless I'd done those things. And indeed, if I was to go back in time uh, and do the variety show again, I would do it completely differently. Yeah, right. Whether that would be a sensible thing to go back and do, I don't know. I suspect not these days. I don't think there is an appetite for that sort of show. But, but you know, yeah, I, I think the idea of creating an environment where you can find you don't have to be the alpha and omega of the joke in other words you can you can create a an atmosphere and a climate where people can find the humor which is often what radio is about and it's genuine and you can you know there's something quite nice about that something quite nice and quite joyful about that i think mm. um you're still exercising all the things you know it's just all invisible and it's a lot of it now is for me second nature, and uh, I can jolly things along and have it look. I remember remember talking about um, talking about your generation with um, Andrew Denton, and he was just about to do I think Randling, and we were talking about the show and and the expectation that we're sort of like the school teacher in a in a room full of kids that are misbehaving. And uh, I think we both agreed that that wasn't much fun because the school teacher has to keep going, no, no, um, let's do this. And it was more fun to think of it like we were uh, one of the students who'd been temporarily put in charge of the classroom. Yeah. And that's a lot more fun, I think, because you can, yeah, it's just, just in terms of having the right attitude. I think that's more fun because usually the guy running the show doesn't get to have any fun. Mm. Usually the guy running the show has to, uh, you know, direct traffic and who wants to do that. That's very true. It's boring. What do you What do you think is the best and the worst thing about the industry? Um, I think it's probably. I think I think the best thing about it is that if you if you manage to jump through the hoops early on and get through the gates and get to do what you want to do, all those, all the suffering that you feel that you've been through, <laughs> going through those hoops and going through those gates has actually. Uh, equipped you with a skill set to be able to talk to everybody who's going to help you achieve what you want to achieve with your own gig, mm. uh, and uh, it's almost it's it's almost by accident that you've learnt all these things, and I think that's the great thing about it. And the other great thing about it is that it is truly an egalitarian profession. You can come into this from any direction you want. From it doesn't matter you, uh, of your experience. It's all about your talent and your talent will out you know it will you will end up doing what you want to do and all the things that you learn on the way about refolding that thing to mm. fit to fit the opportunity that's presented to you is uh, that's up to you but you, you know I'd, I would I would encourage anybody listening not to be discouraged by having to take a sideways step and not the one that you felt that you wanted to take because that sideways step is going to lead to another step and it's going to you just got to do every thing that's offered to you when you're starting out and 
it can't not work. There will be an opportunity where you where you'll be match fit for when it comes along. But if you keep saying no to things because it's not quite right, I'm not sure about that. This doesn't feel right. Then you're not going to be fit enough to jump on board something that that's hurtling past you. You know, you've you you don't know what it is until you're that close to it. I think that's probably true. And the other thing, in terms of the negative side of it, it's a very cruel profession. If, you, if you're thinking of being an actor or you're thinking of being, being a performer and you do hear no a lot from people you're auditioning for or your phone doesn't ring or whatever, if it's possible, try and reassure yourself that those no's might have nothing to do with you. It might be that you're the same height as the person that was going to be opposite you, for example, and they needed somebody who looked a bit whose hair wasn't that colour, yeah. and it's they're, they're just really got nothing to do with anything. Um, it's out of your control. <clears throat> it is. It mm. is. So you can only if you're going to worry about anything, only worry about the stuff that you can control, mm. and then everything else you've just got to take a leap of faith. Um, and the the nose are going to be fine because what it does is create a, create a hole and therefore an opportunity for you to do something else. I mean, the difficult time is when you hit your, probably hit your 40s, I guess. And if you felt you haven't done it, what you wanted to do up until then, you either need to maybe rethink what it is that you want to do. Or, you know, I know a lot of people who just get out of the biz because it's too painful to, mm. to keep going through it. And, you know, that, I guess that can happen too. That's a reality. And I'm not suggesting everybody can end up doing what they wanted to do. But uh, it's that folding. It's that, it's that. Retooling of your machine, and you got to keep it humming, and make sure it's pretty adaptable. We're we're coming towards the final moment, so I just want to applaud us both. We have been sitting in one of the hottest studios ever with a bottle of water next to us that I think we both every time (laughs) there's a breaking conversation look at longingly. So I'm just going to give us both an opportunity to sure. Oh, good lord! Twenty five billion dollars they spent in this room. I feel like we have literally been every every five seconds as we're going through. I'm thinking, I think I'm pretty sure Sean wants to drink right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've been quite parched for the whole thing. You've got a couple of great, um, like you've got XPM um, coming up this month. Uh, Mad as Hell's coming back next year. You've just written a children's book that's coming out. Do you feel now like you're in the part of your career where? you've got a bit more control over it where all of that paper, that folding has gotten to the point where you go, okay, now there's no more of the stuff that I don't want to do or that's not going to work. I have a bit more. Yeah, I think I've. Uh, it, sometimes it feels like um, I don't have to do as much folding anymore. I think maybe what's changed is the the opportunity is now a bit bespoke for me. You know, it's just like, well, what would you want to do rather than, hey, we've got this thing uh, we've got this shape here we'd like you to fill. Can you uh, fill that shape? It it seems now that, you know, in the case of the children's book, I, I wrote a, a book and, and uh, I quite like doing that rather than getting it approved and having to write necessarily to a deadline or getting halfway through and thinking, you know what, this is no good and I'm still obliged to finish it. So I, I wrote the book and said, what do you think of this? And they said, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll publish that. That's perfect. That, that's oh, that's the, good. that is unfiltered, <laughs> unprocessed. That's that's just perfect. So I think, yeah, I think I'm lucky that there will be things that I can do that are like purely what I, what I enjoy and I hope other people enjoy as well. Uh, I also think maybe I can read the room a little bit better, and that happens. That comes through age and maturity and experience, I suppose. 
And if someone says no to me, then that's great. That's the second best answer you can get from anybody in the industry is a is a no, rather than yeah, let's uh, let's have a look at that again. And if you were in some sort of development, that's the other thing. I, if I can advise you about anything, if you get into development hell, <laughs> and you end up doing a lot of work on something. Just make sure you stop and assess what it is you're doing to your baby, uh, because if <laughs> if by the fifth rewrite it's turned into something that you don't recognise anymore, I'd get out. Mm. You know, I was watching uh, the ABC sent me some preview screenings of XPM, and one of the most amazing things about that was I was watching John Clark. Yeah, and I thought this is where. You know, you get so used to seeing certain people on their screen, your screens, and then when someone passes away, but their work, obviously their past work is will always survive, but they have done something that is yet to be shipped out that we get to see after they're gone. It's just so powerful. Yeah, yeah. And I, uh, yeah, look, John... Uh, John was. Um, we finished shooting on the Friday, and John passed away on the Sunday. Oh. Uh, and I, we we all, when you make a show, you feel you know like a you know we're a kind of family, I guess. So we we all felt we would have felt it anyway, but we guess we felt it so keenly that mm. you know we were we'd all been very very close during the six seven weeks we were shooting, and and uh, yeah, I I wasn't relishing the prospect of of editing the show because we had to go and edit the show and we were also down but you know the re- the great thing was it was like working with him again to sit in the edit suite and, and I was watching and he does so many scenes uh, that I'm lucky enough to do with him in there just sitting seeing me sitting there with him yeah. doing uh, doing some material together it's such a kick for me and also the fact that he's not doing what he normally does of his own stuff and, and uh, I get I get double pleasure because not only is he performing material I've written mm. but but he's um he's going to be seen and he'd be very proud I'm very proud of the fact that he's so good in this mm. I guess I'm really so happy that I can be the one to say this look at this look look what he you know look what he yeah. did look what he did uh yeah and uh you know he was one of the reasons I got in I got interested in comedy and and that thing I've been saying about how do you get there from here I mean he he and Barry Humphreys, I guess, and Gary McDonald were all, you know, for all intents and purposes, the Australian connection. And I had a more intimate relationship with John Clark because he was on radio. And radio just seems a little warmer or friendlier or closer than maybe seeing Barry Humphreys in a film yeah. or, or, or Gary on, on television. So John John was a very familiar voice to me, and I thought he was very funny. And I, and he's probably got, I don't know, he probably had 15 years on me, I think. So he was quite a young man when I was listening to him. Mm-hmm. And he was the first comedy record I bought was the Fred Dagg one. Oh, really? And then for him to end up saying, yes, he'd appear on the McAuliffe program. Yes, he'd turn up in Welcher and Welcher, and then he would do this show with me. It was just such a, a kick. And the other thing is when you meet people who are, who are your hero, you know, and they're actually really nice. Yeah. And, and the feeling that you got about them when you watch them is exactly the truth. That's, uh, you know, that's great. It's that's a magical great. thing. Yeah. Are, you, are you a fan of The West Wing? 
Yes, absolutely. You, I was watching. There's a lot. Of, it's like the I don't, and I don't mean this in terms of the writing. I mean it in terms of the set. I was watching in the opening scenes with. It's like the pov, oh, yes. the pov walk and talk. <laughs> yes, that's right. You know? Yeah, no. There's a there's a lot of there's a lot of West Wing in the, in the XPM, uh, knowingly, and and also the uh, the fact that we walk from one end to the other and have to turn around and come back again. Yeah. We don't have quite the circle that they have. No. Um, right. We're on to the final five questions. Right. Your biggest regret? I sometimes think that it's that I didn't do it earlier, you know, because I didn't get into this business until I was 30. But having said that, I'm really grateful for the 10 years I spent working in the law. And also, also I don't think I'd be quite whatever I am uh, <laughs> without the <laughs> discipline of, of having done a law degree, to be mm-hmm. honest, and, and to be able to solve problems in the way that I think that I can. So, uh it's a very, it's a pretty shallow regret. I don't really have any regrets at all. I wish, I wish perhaps I was. I used to get, used to get sort of really angry and protective over things and not listen to people. I wish I'd sort of been a bit more uh, like I hopefully am now, which is just a little more, you know, mellow about everything. Over your work. Yeah, I used to get very protective of it, I guess, and and not trust too many people. And I think that came from ignorance that I didn't quite know what I didn't know. I think, and the few things that I did know, I. I felt were more important than they were. So, yeah. Uh, Does it feel like that's a bit of a survival mechanism when you haven't got the body of work be- to truly be quietly confident in your ability? Yeah. You sort of feel like you need to... Well, when, when we were doing the variety show, for example, uh, we, we had suggestions about how we could uh, help uh, stem the, f- the, the flow of... Um, ratings because it was going down and so there, there were lots of suggestions of how we could increase it and I remember I, I just because I couldn't get my head around how you could turn the boat around mm. it was such a big ship you know and it was in weekly turnaround and I think I just closed down yeah um, so I wish I, I wish I hadn't done that uh, what what's your dream gig um, I think I'm doing it I think this is pretty much it. I don't know whether I... I've never felt the desire necessarily to go overseas and start again and try and build up. I, I, I've done it a few times, I think. What about the, the writing but not performing bit? I mean, obviously you have a bit of a skill in that that you sort of... I suppose is a bit of a security blanket in some ways because you go, well, if the TV, if the on-screen thing stops... Yeah, that'll happen. Inevitably, that, mm. that will happen. I, I, I think there'll come a point. I'm very lucky that I'm still that people still want to, you know, don't mind seeing me on television. But, yeah, it's going to be some point where this old guy on television is not going to be worth seeing anymore. So hopefully, uh, yeah, hopefully I can continue as a producer and a, a writer, I would think. And, and you know, to be honest, I would love to do proper radio. You know, I'd love to treat, you know, approach radio in the way that it deserves, mm. um, whether there's an audience for that. I always say to my wife that um, probably when I retire I will, buy an old cinema somewhere and probably just show films that I like. No one will ever come along. <laughs> just just you. Just me. In the empty cinema. I probably just I couldn't she said, Why don't you just watch DVDs? Or, I said, Yeah, I suppose. It's not quite, not quite as romantic sitting there in a chair watching a television versus running an old cinema. And, uh, it's not quite as romantic. <laughs> I love that she's just. I uh, can just yeah. get a DVD. We got Netflix. What's what's wrong with you? Um, is there a big idea that you've got that you still want to get up? Anything that's burning within you? You don't have to. Yeah. Look, I did. A, I did a. I did a series recently for SBS, which was 
not a comedy series, but it, uh, but it had some humour in it. But it was a more gentle humour about faith, ah, yes. and it was kind of I kind of it was kind of just interesting for me to do it and explore it and talk to people. And I do enjoy that. I like I would like to do a, more in the documentary genre. I think because I genuinely, if I can, you know, there are plenty of topics that I'm enthusiastic about learning about that I don't know anything about. And if there's an appetite for having somebody who doesn't know what the hell they're doing wandering around and talking to people, then I'm your man. You know, So I would like to do more of that. I, think. I don't know whether you're going to take this as a compliment or not. It depends on what you think of him, but I hope you will see it as a compliment. You have a very Louis Theroux vibe. Okay, no, well, that's a, I take that as a compliment. He's yeah. a very effective communicator, and I, th- I you know, I, I, the thing I like about Louis Thoreau and like about Michael Palin and even, uh, you know, even Stephen Fry as well, is that they they're genuinely interested. Yes. I think Louis Thoreau's not uh, self conscious about not knowing what the hell he's doing or even how he's coming across. Yes. Uh, and there's a sort of a, that's very charming. I think mm. I'm not I, I'm not conscious of that, but I think I think there's a certain um, I like listening to people's stories and I like asking them genuine questions. I suppose, and I think that's easier to do when you're in their world rather than necessarily bring them into a studio. I actually don't think I'm a very good interviewer, but I'm a reasonably reasonably good at having a conversation with somebody, mm. and then we'll cut out the boring bits later. <laughs> Yeah. Just fix it in post. Yeah. So I mean, the subject of alcohol has always interested me, and I, I'd like to tackle that in Australia's interesting attitude to the consumption of alcohol without being a wowser. I think there's got to be a way of approaching that topic without, without appearing to necessarily have an agenda. But I, I find that really interesting, and I find, I find, yeah, that sort of culture of consumption. Uh, worthy of investigation, and probably I can't do it by myself, but I'd like to, you know, work with like-minded people on that because I find that interesting. Mm. Well, watch this space. Uh, if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? I'd be, um, gee, I'd probably be. If I wasn't in showbiz, which I assume is what this is, mm. I guess I'd still be. I'd probably be a judge now. I'd probably be uh, chief justice of the uh, International Court at the Hague. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it could have been, could have been good. <laughs> it could have been very good. Uh, and finally, your advice to people wanting to get into the business. Yeah, well, I, I'm I'm just going to talk about Joseph Campbell again. I, I think if you're lucky enough to know that that's what you want to do, that that is the thing that gives you uh, pleasure, and uh, you know it's a healthy thing, and you feel alive doing it. If you find whatever it is, whether it's showbiz or whatever it is nursing actually something more important like saving lives or whatever it is then that can only be that is the only thing you can do you know you have to do that because everything else is a compromise and you'll you'll hit 45 and be a bit sad mm. <laughs> and nobody wants that no one wants sadness in their life <laughs> if you can avoid sadness that's great although you know the thing is you appreciate things more i suppose if you just allow yourself but i, I think leap off leap off the cliff and let the angels save you you know it'll work just circle a date on your calendar in yep. the kitchen. And commit. And commit and do it, and all this could be yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like I say, you don't know what it is until you've lived it, you know, mm. really. I guess when you go to bed at night and you're thinking about that last thing before you drop off to sleep and you're saving whatever it is, just don't have too many real expectations. <laughs> just have a general feeling of it, and yeah. then almost anything you do will satisfy you. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Sean, thank you so much for ridding your body of all moisture. <laughs> it's completely over yeah. Rachel and I are just wearing towels. This is, this is the, the ABC sauna. We're smoking cigars. 
I'll just pour a bit more of that water. <laughs> Let's get out of here. Oh, it's been such a treat. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to You've Got to Start Somewhere. Thanks. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes, and keep up to date, head to you've got to start somewhere.com. Thanks so much for listening to this, the final episode of season one of You've Got to Start Somewhere. I'm going to get a little weepy. Uh, This will be the last show for this year. I will be back with more guests next year. I'm already in the process of sorting it all out and trying to get as ahead of myself as I possibly can. Thank you so much for sticking with me these last 27 episodes. It has been unbelievable, the conversations that I've had, the friendships that I've made, the stories that have come out of these chats and mostly the support that I have gotten from you for this little show. I am absolutely floored by your delightful emails, the lovely reviews that you leave in iTunes, and I am so happy you're enjoying the show and I really can't wait to bring it back. Thank you so much for all your guest suggestions. I have managed to tick a few off the list, especially Sean, who was one of my most requested for the year, and there are plenty more that I'm still searching for for next year. So don't worry if you've put in a suggestion I have noted it and I will do my very best to get that guest on the program. If you want to continue to keep in touch, please, by all means, send an email. You can find my contact details at you've got to start somewhere.com. Shout out to Olivia and Cameron for your emails recently. Cameron, I hope that this week's episode lived up to the expectation. I certainly enjoyed the chat. Also, a shout out to Sean of SA, Zena, and Glee688 for your reviews in iTunes. The show will still be there sitting there quietly waiting for the next round of interviews but if you haven't yet left a review or you haven't yet shared it with friends or told somebody who you think might enjoy it I would love you to keep the show alive even though it'll be on a little break make sure you've subscribed to the show in iTunes or wherever you listen because then you will be the very first to hear when the brand new episode of season two comes out I have to give a big audio hug and kiss as well to Darcy Milne at Pro Podcast Production for his help with this audio. If you need any assistance in anything podcast production related, he is your go-to man. I will miss being in your ears every week, that is for sure. And thank you so much again for joining me for You've Got to Start Somewhere. I'll see you next season. 